The Nats Chat Podcast brought to you by Walters. This weekend, bottomless brunch starts at 11 a.m. on both Saturday and Sunday. Enjoy bottomless mimosas, Bloody Marys, Truly, and Bud Light for only $20 with your purchase of a brunch entree. This Saturday night, UFC 265, Jose Aldo taking on Pedro Munoz and main event Derek Lewis versus undefeated Cyril Gaon. Make your reservations for this week's events now at waltersdc.com slash reservation. On Sunday, Navy Yard is the place to be with the Hella Mega Tour featuring Weezer and Green Day at Nationals Park. Plus, DC United are playing at Audi Field at 8 p.m. Walters is the perfect place to hang out before either event. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now the pitch. Did he go? Check swing. They'll appeal. And yes, it's a swing, says John Lipka, the third base umpire. And Adrianza knew it. He strikes out the 10th strikeout of the game for Josiah Gray. So the batter will be Riley Adams, the rookie catcher, looking for his first hit as a national. And the pitch swung on, hit high in the air, deep left field, way back, going, going, gone, goodbye! Unbelievable! A two-run home run for Riley Adams. His first hit in a Nationals uniform leaves the park. And the Nationals held scoreless for eight innings and down a run with two out of the top of the ninth inning. Bang! Zoom goes Riley. And just like that, it's the Nationals three and the Braves two. And welcome to Nat Chat for Sunday, August 8th, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. A win, a dramatic win for the Nationals on Saturday night, 3-2 the final at the Atlanta Braves, a Nationals offense that was sleepy the entire evening, that was uh, essentially impotent the entire evening, erupts in the top of the ninth inning with a mammoth go-ahead two-run homer from Riley Adams as the Nats on Saturday night won a game for the first time since the previous Sunday afternoon. Yes, the Nats went an entire work week without a victory, but they pull off the victory Saturday night at the Braves. Josiah Gray was excellent. Another youngster, another recently acquired youngster from the sell-off comes through with the home run. The young boys, they were battling, and they came through on Saturday night, Mark. That was a fun game. See how rebuilding teams can be fun sometimes. There's some heartache. There's some difficult games to watch. But every once in a while, you get something like this. And this is one where it's not that they won the game, it's who won the game for them. We keep talking about pay less attention to the results of these games and pay more attention to who is doing it and when they're doing it. And if you're the Nationals and you're trying to sell everyone on the idea of what they're now embarking on, 
this is the game you want to show them. You get a great start from your new top young pitcher, at least it's in the big leagues already, the guy that you traded Max Scherzer and Trey Turner for. You get a scoreless inning, by the way, from one of the other relievers you picked up, Mason Thompson. And then you get the big blast in the ninth from Riley Adams, who's not even the top catcher they got at the trade deadline, but he has a chance to be one of the catchers they have here for a long time. And all those games that they lost because Brad Hand was pitching in the ninth inning, they just won one because the guy they traded Brad Hand for hit a homer and blew the save for the opposing pitcher in the ninth inning. If you're the Nationals, that's the best case scenario right there. That was everything you could ever want in one ballgame right now. It also continues to be remarkable that a team that just engaged in a massive sell-off, what, a little more than a week ago, is already reaping the benefits of players acquired in that sell-off. Like, I can't emphasize this enough. You almost never see this. And yet you're seeing this here with this team this season with, like you just said, three different guys acquired in the sell-off all contributing in meaningful ways in this game on Saturday night. So I think the headline performance was by Josiah Gray, but the drama was provided by Riley Adams. I mean, who'd have thunk it? Riley Adams was an at starting catcher and number eight batter on Saturday night. He goes one for three with a huge two-run homer and also an impressive walk. This will get lost in the shuffle. Riley Adams led off the top of the six with a 10-pitch walk. That was some plate appearance, but no doubt the homer is the thing that sticks with you. A two-out first pitch, go-ahead, two-run homer to the upper deck in left field of Braves closer Will Smith in the top of the ninth. The Nats entered that ninth inning down to nothing. They exited that top of the ninth inning, leading 3-2. Now, the homer for a while was taking on like a legendary status because for whatever reason, I guess because they couldn't find a baseball, StatCast wasn't pumping out the data for the home run. It came out eventually. It's only 412 feet. I got to say, Mark, I was very disappointed when I saw that number. I thought it was going to be like, you know, 440 or 450. I mean, I'm not really that familiar with the dimensions at Truist Park, but I was like, 412, that's not that great. But still, that was some shot. Visually, it looked like it went about 600 feet. Yeah, no, I agree. And I was actually kind of disappointed that they did get the numbers finally on it because the legend of it would have been so much greater if we never knew exactly how far. And Riley Adams himself said, he, when he made contact, he knew he got it. He knew it was a home run. But as he's trotting down the first baseline, he looks up to left field. He couldn't find the ball himself either. So he had no idea where it was. In a way, I'm actually disappointed that we know it's 412 feet because if not for that, the urban legend that would grow over the years of Riley Adams' first career homer, next thing you know, he's telling his grandkids it was 500 feet and left the ballpark altogether. But I think the reason they couldn't find it, 41 degree launch angle. That is up there. That is high in the sky. And he got all of that one. And I can't tell you like what this means for them. And for him, they were happy with the at-bats that he's had, even though he hadn't delivered a hit yet, certainly hadn't delivered a home run yet. You mentioned the walk was a great at-bat. He hit the ball hard up the middle in his first at-bat. And second baseman just happened to be positioned well to make the play on it. But like just to see the result of it and to see a positive result, it just goes such a long way. And you can tell there's a bunch of new players on this team now, and they're all getting to know each other. They're going to go through this whole thing together. And when they do it in this way, where it is the young guys delivering and contributing, that's a communal experience. And I think there's a lot of joy for all of them in doing this. And by the way, let's point out that the Nationals, despite all the star power they had for the first four months of the season, they had only come from behind to win when trailing after eight innings once this year. They were one in 43. I believe that was the, the crazy game in Philly that was 13 to 12. This is only the second time they've done it all year. And look who provided a guy who a week ago, none of us ever heard of and had no reason to even know who he was. 
Yes, that is, as they say, baseball. And that's precisely what went down on Saturday night. I tell you, Nats have got a very intriguing thing going on at catcher now. When you think about this battle, presumably for the number two catcher moving forward, Riley Adams and Tres Pereira, you've got the premium prospect, Cabert Ruiz. Uh, We're now being told that's how you say it, Cabert Ruiz, as one of the top catching prospects in all of baseball. So you've got some excitement here when it comes to the catching position. So really cool to see that. Great job by Riley Adams. That is his first hit as a Nat. That is his first major league home run. I mean, that is quite a memory to have pulling off a shot like that, a moonshot, a game-winning shot in this win at the Braves on Saturday night. But like I said, I think the ultimate takeaway, the long-term takeaway from this game, if you're a Nats fan, is Josiah Gray and what he did and how he looked in this 3-2 win at the Braves on Saturday night. He was terrific. There are no two ways about it. He was terrific. Two runs, just one earned in five innings. So, okay, he only went five innings. You want to say, hey, I want a guy to go longer, fine. But 10 strikeouts, 10 strikeouts in five innings. He only gave up four hits, one of which was a homer, but uh, the other three, a double and two singles. Issued just two walks, did throw a wild pitch, threw 82 pitches over the five innings, But the dominance in terms of the strikeouts was so great to see. Gray recording three swinging strikeouts of all three of the batters he faced in a perfect bottom of the second. Dansby Swanson, Adam Duvall, and Jock Peterson. You know, Gray in his Nats debut at 7-5 loss to Philadelphia Nationals Park on Monday night only had two strikeouts. He was good, one run in five innings, but just the two strikeouts. That was like maybe the biggest nit to pick with that performance. 10 Ks on Saturday night. And if you add that to what he did in his brief time at the major league level with the Dodgers, Josiah Gray now over 18 major league innings has 25 strikeouts. Now, small sample size, clearly. But to me, after location, the second most important thing for a pitcher is the ability to strike out batters. You know, the possession of swing and miss stuff. And it sure seems, Mark, like Josiah Gray possesses swing and miss stuff. Well, he certainly did in this game. Um, all 10 strikeouts are swinging strikeouts, none of them looking. He had 20 total swinging strikes in only five innings. The Braves swung the bat 40 times. They did not make contact 20 times. 50% swing and miss rate. That's insane. That's Max Scherzer beyond. Now, it's one start, so you don't want to read too much into it, of course. And maybe just all the stars were aligned in this one. But what stuck out to me about it is he was getting it on really interesting combination of breaking balls that he throws. He throws both a slider and a curveball. And there are pitchers who do that, including Max Scherzer. But here's what stands out about Josiah Gray's. They come in at almost the exact same velocity. It's like 83 to 86. The curveball's a little on the lower end, the slider a little bit on the higher end. But the curveball breaks differently, has more downward movement, has more spin on it. That was the really the go-to pitch in this one. That was 12 of the 20 swinging strikes were on the curveball. But to be able to give hitters Two different looks that out of the hand, they look the exact same. And it's really not till the end. They break slightly different. And do you follow Pitching Ninja on Twitter? Yeah. He had a great one of these. I love these. Does the overlay of different pitches. He showed a fastball and the breaking ball. I can't remember if it was the slider or the curveball. And it was remarkable because they leave his hand at the exact same point. They start off exactly the same. And then they go in wildly different directions. That is an amazing trait to have as a pitcher. If he can keep doing that, he's going to have a big career. That is elite stuff right there. That wowed me more than anything else tonight from uh, Josiah Gray. 
Yeah, and that's the thing. Swing and miss stuff doesn't necessarily mean, you know, glove popping velocity. Like, if you have that, great. But swing and miss stuff can come in a variety of ways, like velocity for sure, but pitch movement, your ability to tunnel pitches, your ability to have the same release point for all pitches. So every pitch looks the same initially to a batter, and then the baseball does what the baseball is going to do. If Josiah Gray can do those things, more power to him, you know? And if he's only topping out at, say, I don't know, 94, 95, whatever it is, that's fine. Like, you don't have to throw 99 if that's not within you. Josiah Gray, over three minor league seasons, averaged 10.4 strikeouts per nine innings. So, you know, that's not necessarily like elite strikeout stuff in the minors, but that's more than a strikeout per inning, which is ideally what you're looking for with pitchers in this day and age. And like I said, so far, small sample size, yes, but 25 strikeouts over 18 innings. I know you've talked about this. The guy is mature. The guy is composed. You know, he got into some trouble in this game on Saturday night. It wasn't necessarily always smooth sailing. The bottom of the third, you know, things got a little dicey in that inning. Now, he struck out the Braves' first batter in the inning, Stephen Vogt, but the strikeout comes on a swinging strike that was a wild pitch, so Vogt gets the first base. You get a one-out ribby single by Ozzie Albies that includes a bad fielding error by Andrew Stevenson. I don't know what happened. Stevenson just whiffing on the baseball and trying to scoop up the baseball with his glove. And then Gray, after that, issued a one-out five-pitch walk of the Braves' next batter, Jorge Soler. So, you know, some trouble there, but the damage was minimized. Did give up the home run to Soler on a bomb uh, to left center field in the uh, the bottom of the first inning. Now, that homer actually went further than the Riley Adams homer, if you could believe that, 424 feet for StatCast with one out there in the bottom of the first. But otherwise, Mark, I mean, two starts into this thing, I think so far so good for Josiah Gray with the Nats. Yeah, and like you said, getting into some jams and getting out of them. And, you know, he's a little bit deliberate. I was thinking there for a moment, oh boy, out of the stretch, he seems to be not as comfortable. But I think it was also him just being composed and not rushing it, not trying to get it done too quickly. And that third inning, he strikes out their number three and four hitters. And I know the number three hitter at that point is Ahire Adrianza because Freddie Freeman had to leave the game early with uh, some kind of like upper respiratory infection, which is a little scary in the COVID world. And Freddie Freeman's a guy who both got COVID last year and got it bad before the season started. But apparently everything's fine there. It's nothing like that. But, you know, so, hey, he catches a break, doesn't have to face Freddie Freeman there. But he gets Austin Riley twice. He struck him out. By the way, Austin Riley and Riley Adams, that's not going to be confusing at all over the years as we try to keep track of all that. So, you know, really good job coming through in that spot. Did so again in the fourth, did so again in the fifth. And I liked he's at 82 pitches at the end of the fifth. And Davey said, like, yeah, I could have pushed him a little bit more than that. But his spot was coming up in the lineup. But I think even more than that, you let him finish on a good note. Let's remember what the focus is here. It's not just about trying to win games. It's about building these young kids' confidence. And for him to come out of the game after five, having struck out 10 against that lineup, only one earned run, I mean, that to me was was absolutely the right move. And Josiah himself admitted that he thought it was the right move too. I completely agree with the decision. You know, there's no, obviously, if this year was a normal year, you know, I'd be built up to 100 plus pitches, but obviously coming off the two-month injury and this only being my third or fourth outing in the big leagues. There's going to be a time and a place to start to push him a little bit. Let's remember he was injured earlier in the year. He has not pitched a lot and he wasn't even a pitcher originally coming up. So he's still very inexperienced from a pitching standpoint. They're going to be careful with him. They're going to watch his pitch counts. We'll get to a point where he's starting to approach 100. But for now, no need to do that. Give him his five good solid innings. Let him leave on a high note. And even if they lose this game 2 nothing, and they do nothing offensively, and I can tell you this because this was my story, which I had already written until the home run was hit and I had to scramble to rewrite it. The point was going to be, that's okay. This is still going to be a net positive for the Nationals. And you can't be anything but encouraged by what you saw from tonight because of what Josiah Gray did. I was all ready to say that 
in the opening of the podcast before Adams did what he did. I was like, I don't care that they got shut out tonight. I don't care that they didn't hit. The takeaway is Josiah Gray. You look great. Ten strikeouts in five innings. Like, that's what you cling to if you're a Nationals fan. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Juan Soto? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons. Just superstars. Some lawyers switch firms because of conflict. Some lawyers switch firms for a better platform for their practice. And some lawyers switch firms for more money. You need the Scott Boris of legal headhunters working for you. And that's Mason. Mason will work with you to find a better fit for your practice and ultimately the best deal for you and your entire team. Call them today at 202 486 3535 or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market, and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself on personal service. Zenith Legal doesn't just spam resumes out to law firms. Zenith Legal talks to the right people and gets your resume in front of the decision makers who matter. Whether you are a rainmaker partner or a mid-level associate, give Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal a call today to accelerate your career. Call today, 202-486-3535. And the pitch. Swing and a slow ground ball right side. Bell will field. Finnegan has to get over. The flip. The toss. The call is out at first. And a curly W is in the books. On a bang, bang play at first base. Bell wide of the line to get it. Finnegan racing over. And it was a close play. And the first base umpire, Jeremy Rehack, with the out call as he just beat Heredia to the bag. And the Nationals end their losing streak with a come-from-behind win in the ninth inning in Atlanta. What's so interesting about this game, it wasn't just Josiah Gray 
for the first time in a long time, let us tip the collective cap to the Nationals' bullpen, which was excellent in this 3-2 win at the Braves on Saturday night. You know, game in, game out, the Nats' bullpen gives up runs. I mean, this has been going on for weeks now, where like every game, the bullpen gives something up. Not in this game, it didn't. Four Nats relievers combined for four scoreless innings. Mason Thompson's looked very good so far as a National. Scoreless bottom of the six with two strikeouts. Ryan Harper continued to be a shutdown reliever. Scoreless bottom of the seventh. Andres Machado looked quite good. A perfect bottom of the eighth inning with two strikeouts. And Kyle Finnegan, you know, you weren't quite sure what to expect from Kyle. Overall, he's doing a good job. But, you know, coming off the shaky outing, 3-2 game at the Braves. Is Kyle going to deliver in the bottom of the ninth? He does. A perfect bottom of the ninth inning. Really good job by four natural relievers on Saturday night. Yeah, it was. And again, let's look at at least in three out of the four cases, you're talking about younger guys who could be a part of the future. Thompson acquired from the Padres for Daniel Hudson with two strikeouts hitting Machado. He's 28, but he's still a rookie with not a lot of experience. Two strikeouts in his inning. And Finnegan, who he didn't have a lot of time to warm up. <laughs> it's the Adams home run. And then, man, he has to scramble to get ready. And he came in and everything was calm and composed. There was no drama at all in the bottom right. There was a drive to the warning track by Jock Peterson, but wasn't anything that was, you know, all that like concerning. I think it was even wound up in foul territory. So nothing bad there. A nice, clean, simple inning from him, which is important for his confidence. And then the one veteran out of the group, or at least veteran in terms of age, Ryan Harper, again, they're trailing. So it wasn't truly a high leverage spot, but that was an important inning for him. And he's got the ERA now down to 0.86. He's done everything you could ask of him in the spots they've used him in. And at some point, yeah, I think you will see him in a a few more situations of consequence. Maybe he's not going to get the priority over guys like Finnegan and, you know, even Thompson and Klobositz, but he's done everything they could ask of him. And that's all he can continue to do. Take the ball when they ask him and go put up zeros. Yeah. I think Davey's waiting until winter bowl to put Ryan Harper in a high leverage spot. I don't know. I don't know what Davey wants the guy to do. Jeez. Uh, Anyway, Harper looked good. They all look good. So very good job by that Nationals bullpen. So, yeah, I mean, beyond the Riley Adams homer, uh, truth be told, there was not a lot happening for the Nationals offensively in this game. But there was a very good development in this game, and that was the usage of Juan Soto as a pinch hitter. Now, he did not start on Saturday night. He did not start for a second consecutive game due to tweaking his right knee while running the bases in the bottom of the ninth of the 7-6 loss to Philadelphia Nationals Park on Thursday. But we got the good news prior to the game. Davey Martinez in his pregame presser saying that an MRI exam on Soto's right knee came back negative. Soto, we had been told, had been available as a pinch hitter on Friday night. We didn't see him in that game, but we do see him on Saturday. He pinch hits in the top of the sixth inning, draws a pinch, six-pitch walk. The Nationals, unfortunately, not able to come through uh, with the bases filled with Nationals base runners in that sixth inning. But good to see one out there. You know, I I was going to ask you uh, prior to him pinch hitting, I was like, boy, is this going to turn out into a situation in which Soto's put on the 10-day injured list? But it looks like, I don't know if he'll uh, start Sunday, but obviously he's good enough to at least pinch hit right now. Good enough to pinch hit and good enough to then run the bases, which I thought was important because maybe they'll say, hey, go up there and take your hacks. And then once you get on first base, we're going to put someone out there to run for you. And they didn't do that. They trusted him. That didn't matter in the end. There wasn't a whole lot that happened offensively after that, but they at least we're confident that he wasn't going to hurt himself running the bases. So that's good. We'll see about Sunday. I, I would guess that he's probably not in the lineup just out of complete precaution. But if he was good enough to play in this one, then maybe that does mean he is good enough for Sunday. Honestly, we didn't ask about him afterwards because there was enough else going on to ask about. So that was good. And then I also thought there were a couple other things late in the game. Again, there was nothing going on offensively in this game. But Victor Robles off the bench, two for two and a double, including one in the eighth inning that could have started a rally that 
ultimately didn't work out, but that, you know, at the time was an important hit for them. And Ryan Zimmerman off the bench as well with the double in the ninth inning to help get the rally going. He hasn't been great as a pinch hitter. We've talked about that, that it's a tough spot to be in and he's been slumping for a while now. But I think, I haven't looked at the numbers, but over the last couple of weeks, Zim started to turn it on again. He's starting to hit the ball with some authority again. I know he's in an awkward position now, given his the state of his career and where this franchise is headed. But you'd like to see these next two months, him take advantage of the opportunities that he gets. And it feels like here he's been able to do that a few times. Yeah, I mean, it's not been a good season for him as a pinch hitter, but he did come through in that spot. Give him full credit for that. I love seeing Robles do what he did coming off the bench with two hits in this game, ultimately, that uh, one out first pitch double to left field in the pinch hitting scenario in the top of the eighth, and then the two out first pitch single in the top of the ninth. Why didn't Robles start the game? We saw Andrew Stevenson start the game in center field. It was not a good night for him. 0 for 4, strikeout, left three men on base, had that crucial error. Gerardo Parra started this game. Look, I mean, I guess... Robles isn't necessarily going to play every game the rest of the year, but like I want to see him out there a lot. What was the reasoning behind him not starting? Davey said this was particularly a matchup issue with Charlie Morton, that he didn't like the Robles matchup with him, that he liked Stevenson better, and that was planned here for a few days since they knew who they were facing. The wrench that got thrown into it was Soto not being available to start. If everything goes according to plan, it's just Stevenson in center, Robles in right, Yadiel Hernandez in left, and nobody's making a big deal out of it. Now, once Soto's out and he has to replace him in right field, people are saying, well, wait a minute, why are you starting Gerardo Parra on a rebuilding team instead of Victor Robles? And I get that, but this was more a case of he didn't want Robles in the lineup to begin with tonight if for that matchup. And so that's why he did what he did. And, you know, let's throw Davey a little bit of a bone here. Let's look at what his options are. He's got several 30-plus something left-handed hitting backup outfielders on his roster. If that's who's on his roster, he's going to have to use them when he's piecing it together right now, a lineup that is a shell of its former self. And when you take Soto out of the equation, it's even worse. I don't fault him for that. No, Gerardo Parra should not be batting fifth in a major league game, but let's acknowledge what they're working with here. And for one night, it's not a big deal. I don't have a problem with it. Let's say Robles was starting in center field. Stevenson's having a bad year as well. He has really not put up numbers that we thought we might see from him either. So yeah, you want to play the young guys. But it's not like Robles and Stevenson together out there are doing a whole lot and that that's necessarily killing the franchise if one of them has a night off in favor of Ferrado Parra. Yeah, I mean, it's just you want them to try to work through those struggles. Like, I don't know what Davey was so afraid of with this matchup. I mean, I'd have to hear more. I mean, apparently this was like a nightmare matchup or something. But Ferrado Parra, just so people understand, like everybody loves a guy. He's not doing well this year. So, if, you know, it'd be one thing if he was doing kind of like the Josh Harrison thing of, yeah, he's, you know, an older guy, but he's actually hitting quite well. Gerardo Parra, 238 batting average, 278 on base, 369 slugging. I mean, if it wasn't for the baby shark thing, I don't know if he'd be on the team right now. So I just think that's important to keep in mind. But yeah, like understand, it's not going to necessarily be that every young guy plays every game, you know, starts every game. Like I I get that. So, you know, once in a while, that's fine. I just don't want to see anything close to a habit be made out of that. Like what we said, we meant Robles, leadoff spot, basically every day here moving forward. I mean, you know, if, if something pops up, fine. But otherwise, let the guy try to grow into this role. And let's see, sink or swim, if Victor Robles is your everyday center fielder, your every game number one batter moving forward. Like that, to me, is one of the goals here over the final two months of the season. And let me just point out, you said sink or swim. Right now, he's sinking as a leadoff hitter. In the six games since he started going back up there at the trade deadline, two for 22, three walks. He's got an 091 batting average, 231 on base, and 227 slugging. So it has not been working out. 
for him so far. Now, of course, you don't give up on it. We saw them already give up on him in April after he got off to a slow start. You do need to keep putting him out there. I believe he will still keep being out there, but let's not make it seem like the returns so far have been very encouraging for Robles as a leadoff hitter. He's got a lot of work to do. Yeah, he does, but they got to let him try to engage in that work and not you know sit him every two or three games. So we'll see how they play it. The other guy would be Alcides Escobar, who Davey continues to start at shortstop and bat in the number two spot. But Alcides keeps delivering, so it's kind of hard to complain about this. Alcides was on base three times on Saturday night. He had that interesting double that we talked about in the game on Friday night, that uh, defensive swing opposite field double in the uh, 8-4 loss on Friday night. And then Alcides in this game on Saturday night, two for three, two singles and a walk. He has a leadoff single on a 1-2 pitch in the top of the fourth. He has a one-out single in the top of the sixth, and he has a two-out six-pitch walk in the top of the eighth, and another plate appearance in which he was down in the count at 1.12. We've said this already many times with this guy, but he is a master of like the garbage hit, the dirty hit. He's very good when he's down in counts. Like He is a professional hitter, so I guess if he's going to keep hitting like this, you can't whine and cry too much about him continuing to play. And that walk that you just talked about, that's two outs in the eighth with a runner in scoring position, and they're trailing, trying to get something going. For a guy that we would think of as kind of a free swinger, for him to lay off and battle back to draw that walk, that was actually a really big deal. And it almost worked because the next batter, Yadiel Hernandez, hit one to the warning track that it for a second off the bat, you thought he actually got it and maybe would have done what Riley Adams did one inning later. And the pitch to Yadiel is hit high in the air to left field and deep. Back goes Duvall, now slowing up, turning around, makes a backhanded catch right in front of the 375-foot marker. couple of steps from the fence. So Yadiel Hernandez just short, just shy of getting it to the wall and maybe out. Again, given what they have right now, I don't have a problem with Alcides Escobar playing. The only other infielder is Adrian Sanchez. He's no prospect either. So I'm okay with it. Even on rebuilding teams that the youth movement is the priority, you still need a handful of veterans in part to help teach the young guys how to do things. And with a really young and inexperienced middle infielder in Luis Garcia, I am perfectly fine with a veteran like Alcides Escobar playing alongside him. Nat Chat is sponsored by Silver Brands Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before Metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season for Saison, and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park, and make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. Tickets for the remainder of the 2021 Fredericksburg National Season are on sale now. They have promotions for every night of the week, like $2 Tuesdays, Thirsty Thursdays, Firework Fridays, and Giveaway Sundays. If you can't make it to the game in person, you can listen to a free online radio broadcast on the Fred Nats Baseball Network 
or watch a live video stream with a subscription to MILB.TV. Stop by the box office or visit FredNats.com for ticket information and see the future stars of the Washington Nationals today. All right, game three at the Atlanta Braves, Sunday afternoon at 1.20. As uh, Atlanta does, it's Atlanta thing. If you can't start games at 7.05 and 1.05, it must be 7.20 and uh, 1.20. You know, years ago, TBS, which is, of course, owned by the Braves owner, Ted Turner, used to start shows at like 6.05, 7.05, 8.05. And the Braves do that with their baseball games. It can't just be at the normal time. It's always got to be different. I don't know if that's a Ted Turner thing or a Braves thing or whatever. But anyway, 1.20 first pitch on Sunday afternoon, Patrick Corbin versus Max Freed. So let us hope for the best for Patrick and his 574 ERA, and hopefully we have something good, uh, something good to talk about with him off that outing on Sunday. Before we call it a show, though, I do want to talk about something that was said by a former national on Saturday, and that was Trey Turner. Trey Turner was the Dodgers' leadoff batter and starting second baseman on Saturday night. Yeah, he's playing second base for the Dodgers, in case you don't know that. And Trey spoke at length on Saturday to the media And he said the following about contract extension talks with the Nats, quote, I said I would talk about, you know, an extension whenever and waited for for that to happen. And it didn't happen. So I've been told a lot of things over the last two years. And for me, actions speak louder than words. Now we can attach this to what I know you have had intel on and what John Heyman put out there on Tuesday morning that the Nats last offer to Trey Turner was a six year deal worth about one hundred million dollars in March 2020. Uh, Heyman added to his tweet that Nats people suggested publicly and privately they planned to make another offer last spring, but ultimately didn't do so. Now, we understand we're getting Trey's side of things on this. We understand each side is going to say things that benefits that side, but that's a pretty direct thing that Trey Turner said on Saturday. And assuming it's true or the gist of it is true, I think it further cements what we've talked about, and that is The Nationals were never truly interested in signing Trey Turner to a long-term big money contract extension. And I don't blame them for that. But I think it's important to understand that. The Nats decided, who knows when, maybe a while ago, we're not going to pay this guy big money. And it sure seems like the actions communicated that to Trey and his camp. So my takeaway is this, Al, and that's from having heard on both sides of this equation how it all went down. It is clear that there were no substantive talks between the two sides in a while, despite both sides trying to make it seem like they wanted there to be substantive talks. Well, if either side really did want it, wouldn't you think they would push to make it happen? If Trey Turner and his his agents really were serious about, hey, let's talk. I'd like to stay here. Let's talk. You can approach them about that. Instead, they kind of waited and, you know, they said, hey, yeah, you know, we're interested, but never really came in forcefully and said, hey, let's talk seriously about it. And Mike Rizzo of the Nationals can say all they want about, hey, we think he's a big part of our future. We'd love to keep him long term. But they never made the real effort to go and and start anything up again here and, you know, blamed it on Trey and his people wanting to wait and see what the other shortstops got. So there's clearly here evidence that neither side was motivated enough to sit down and actually have a discussion. Just because you have a discussion doesn't mean you end up signing anything, you know? There's nothing stopping you from having that discussion. But for whatever reason, both sides, while wanting to make it sound like they were interested in it, maybe weren't all that interested in it. And it's disappointing, obviously. But the end result, I don't know it was a mistake for either party in this. I don't think that Trey Turner would have taken an offer 
that wasn't a huge number that I'm not sure Mike Rizzo and Mark Lerner would have been comfortable giving him at this point. And I'm not sure that the Nationals were really going to make an offer that he would seriously consider. So it's frustrating. You don't want to see it a relationship end that way. And, and hopefully there's not like lingering bad blood between the two sides or anything like that. But it is seemed pretty clear to me that neither side had any real reason to think anything was going to happen over the last year. Yeah, I would say this though. To me, the onus is more on the club to pursue a long-term deal. Like I think if you really want the guy, you got to be aggressive and try to lock the guy up. I don't think it's as much on the player and his agent because I think naturally speaking, like if you're an agent, if you go to a club and say, my guy wants to stay here, you're kind of subcommunicating, we'll settle for less. And like no agent wants to do that. To me, it's like, all right, you either want him or you don't. And if you want him, then be aggressive, make offers and try to lock him up. And if he says no, then you can say, hey, this guy didn't want to stay here. They didn't want to do it. And again, I don't blame them for this. I just think the mechanics of this, the dynamic of this, it's important to know, okay, well, what was the truth here? The truth here is they didn't want to lock him up. They didn't want to truly sign him. Just like to me, the truth about Bryce Harper is they didn't really want to sign him long-term because that offer they made in you know, the secret envelope, they knew he was going to reject that. And so that's fine. But it's like, let's understand what happened here. I have not heard the audio of Trey's comments, but just reading them, you know, it doesn't sound like all warm and fuzzy feelings. Like, it sounds like he's kind of like, you know, the heck with them. They never really wanted me here. I wanted to play for the Nationals for, for the rest of my career, but, it, and, you know, it doesn't work out like that. And, uh, you know, now he's in a, in a pretty good situation there with the Dodgers. Yeah. And let's also remember the way that his time here ended in very bizarre fashion. You know, there are a handful of trade rumors circulating around, but at that time of last Tuesday, I don't think anybody was seriously thinking that he was going to be on the list. That was sort of the, well, if they were to really blow it all up, he's a guy that you'd want to uh, look and see what you can get for. But probably in his mind, he's not thinking he's going anywhere. And then all of a sudden, he crosses home plate in Philly, learns from his manager that he's tested positive for COVID-19, has to disappear, doesn't get to see anybody else with the team for the rest of the week. He's, he's in quarantine. And then a couple of days later, finds out that he's been traded along with Max Scherzer to the Dodgers, but he can't report there yet until he goes through the whole quarantine and test negative and all that. A really strange circumstance, and it probably led to some of that lack of closure that they got. You know, maybe they spoke on the phone, but Mike Rizzo and Trey Turner didn't get to have any kind of moment in person the way that Rizzo and Scherzer did as the trade was going down. So yeah, it's unfortunate that it ended this way. And I do agree with you. The onus is on the club to start those talks. But I'm just saying, if Trey Turner and his agents were that concerned and that upset that over the last year, they hadn't heard anything from the Nats, there's nothing to stop an agent, at least, from calling a GM and saying, hey, uh, if you guys are interested, we, like we'd like to talk. We're open to talking. And I don't know that that happened necessarily, or if it did, it wasn't communicated in a way that seemed to provide any kind of urgency on the Nationals' part. So it's unfortunate. It's messy. Uh, you don't like to see it end this way for a guy who meant so much to the organization. But in the end, it may have been best for both parties, even though the breakup was ugly. There's a line in the movie Cocktail, the Tom Cruise movie from like 30 years ago. It's a great line. Everything ends poorly. Otherwise, it wouldn't be ending. And I think there's a lot of truth in that, especially <laughs> yeah. in sports. Yeah. Everything ends poorly. Otherwise, it wouldn't be ending. Well, I just hope that the Nats, A, are serious about signing Juan Soto, and B, are aggressive in that manner. And don't try to do this thing of, well, they didn't call us, so do they really want to be here? Like, no, you call them, okay? You put the full court press on to make that happen. Like, you can do that. You're the ball club, you know? So I think it's it's on them to do that, and we'll see if that uh, that ends up happening. 
All right, you tell us what you think. We continue to get a lot of great feedback about what the Nationals are doing. I think a really good night on Saturday night in, in a lot of ways, uh, but principal among them, Josiah Gray. Really good to see him go out there, 10 strikeouts in five innings. Hit us up on Twitter, at Nats underscore chat. You can email us to NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. Please, if you don't already subscribe to the podcast, consider subscribing to the pod. Uh, doing so costs you nothing. And if you haven't already, please give the podcast a five-star rating and just write like a uh, one-sentence review or more if you prefer, uh, saying how much you like the podcast. Uh, doing those things helps out the podcast a great deal. Been reading the reviews. Really appreciate all the nice things uh, you guys have had to say. If you want yourself a good-looking Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt, you can get yours by going to natschatpodcast.square.com. Dot site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Everything ends badly, otherwise it wouldn't end.